All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans 11, 1 through 24. And here Paul continues his discussion of what about the place of Israel? What about the state of Israel? And for Paul, as we've said before, this is a very pressing, real, tangible, practical problem, not just a theoretical or theological problem. It, it includes that, but it's a theological problem that has deeply practical implications for his ministry, for his life. Physically, even, he's experienced this because so many Jews in Paul's day have rejected the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah. And so that raises this question, well, what about them? What about Israel? What about God's promises to them? And it's all of that that Paul has been exploring in Romans 9, 10, and now into chapter 11. We noted the main question in chapter 9 was, well, what about God's word? God's word hasn't come up empty, has it? And Paul said, no, no. God has always had to make choices about who he'll use for certain purposes and through whom the promise will be carried forward. So he's always had to narrow down the descendants of Israel or the descendants of Abraham, and thus they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Well, well, why has Israel, like so many Israelites, so much of Israel missed out on God's righteousness and the Gentiles received it? Well, that was chapter 10. And Paul answers that by saying, basically, well, because of their contrasting responses to the gospel. Israel rejected the gospel and pursued God's righteousness as if it were by Torah through works of keeping the Old Testament law. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, actually believed the gospel. And so they experienced God's righteousness by means of faith. And thus we learn that God's rejection of Israel or narrowing down of Israel isn't arbitrary. Well, here in chapter 11, then, the question that Paul is going to really take up in forces, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? And really what he means by that is, has God rejected Israel completely? Completely. Like, I'm done with them. Wash my hands of Israel. And again, the answer to that is no. No, not completely. Listen to the way Paul says it here at the beginning of chapter 11. Romans 11 verse 1 says this, I say then, God hasn't rejected his people, has he? That's the big question here. May it never be. And then Paul gives himself as a primary example. Here's the case in point. Look at me, the Apostle Paul. He says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul lists off his heritage, his lineage, to say, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm actually from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew through and through. So no, God hasn't rejected his people. And meaning he hasn't rejected his people completely. There are Jews who have believed the gospel and who are following and serving Jesus. And Paul is a case in point. And so Paul goes on in verse 2 and says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God hasn't completely rejected Israel. That's what he means by his people whom he foreknew. Or, and now Paul is going to call out a historical example saying, actually, it was this way in the Old Testament, just as it is today. The majority of the Jews didn't follow God, didn't listen to the law, didn't trust God, and it's the same today. So he's going to call out a historical example here, beginning partway through verse 2, to show us that God has always worked with a small portion of Israel. There's always only been a faithful remnant. And the example he's going to use is 
the episode about Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the Mount Carmel experience and all of that, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 19. And you can hear the specific things he's going to quote here in 1 Kings 19, 10, and 14. This is what it says in Romans chapter 11, beginning partway through verse 2. Or, don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what was the divine response to him, Paul says here in Romans 11? Well, the divine response is this. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the example shows us that God had preserved a remnant in Elijah's day, that there was this portion within Israel that was faithful, a faithful remnant. And that's the way it has always been with God and his purposes and his plans with Israel. It's really always been not the nation as a whole, but a faithful remnant. And so Paul draws that implication out then for us in verses 5 and 6 here. He says this, In the same way then, so just like with Elijah and what God told him, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And that mention of God's gracious choice emphasizes that this was God's way all along. This was what God was doing all along. Not arbitrary. We already saw that in chapter 10. It's in keeping with what Israel had chosen, right? They made their own choices to be faithless in the Old Testament. They made their own choice to reject the gospel here in Paul's day. And so it's not arbitrary, but it's according to God's gracious choice, according to his purposes and according to his plan. Paul goes on in verse 6 and says, now if it's by grace, i.e. God's gracious choice, the choice motivated from grace is the idea, right? So if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul already explained all of that in the end of Romans 3 and all the way through Romans chapter 4, how grace and salvation by grace is opposed to works, especially works of Torah in the original context, but really any kind of works, right? Grace, as Dallas Willard says, is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. There's still effort in following Jesus, but we don't earn anything, and that's the idea. So the moment we think we're going to establish our own rightness with God by means of our works, we've stepped out of the realm of grace. And for Paul, For the gospel, it's always of grace. So then with the example of Paul in mind, with the Old Testament example from the days of Elijah before us, Paul now in verses 7 through 10 draws out the conclusion that he wants us to make sure we get uh, with regard to Israel. And remember, as we read through these verses in verses 7 through 10, we've got to keep our eye on Israel. That's who Paul is talking about. He's really dealing with Israel. He's dealing with what I like to call the remnant and the rest. There's the faithful remnant who in Paul's day and ours have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And then there's the rest of Israel, the rest of the Jews, the rest of Abraham's descendants who haven't believed. And it's the remnant who really make up all Israel, the the Israel of God, if you will, the Israel who is believing. And so keep your eye on Israel as we read down through verses 7 through 10, because that's who Paul is talking about. So he says in verse 7, what then? This is his way of stating his conclusion based on all he said through 9 and 10 up to this point. What then? 
Here is the conclusion. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Um, what is it seeking? Well, the righteousness of God. You can read that at the beginning of chapter 10. Israel seeking the righteousness of God. God's saving justice, but they haven't obtained it because they pursued it wrongly, as Paul explained in chapter 10. So what Israel is seeking, it hasn't obtained. So Israel there means Israel as a whole, the whole lot of them. So what Israel as a whole is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And so those who were chosen they're the remnant, the faithful remnant, the believing remnant. They are the ones that are part of the elect. And so you have the elect Jews, i.e. those who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as explained in chapter 10. And you have the rest, the remnant and the rest. And the rest were hardened. And we've already seen this idea of being hardened in reference to Pharaoh in chapter 9. And there we realize that what Paul means by that is, they have a hard heart, they're resistant to God's will, but they're allowed to continue and to remain for the sake of the remnant, for the sake of the faithful ones, and for the sake of God's purposes. So Pharaoh there is raised up. He's allowed to stand, is the idea. He's not immediately destroyed with the judgment of God so that God can carry forward his purposes with Israel. And it seems by then way of analogy, using the example of Pharaoh, that the same is true about Israel here. When he says the rest were hardened, he means the rest were, were judicially hardened in the sense that you, you want to resist God, fine. You can resist God, but I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to get rid of you because I have purposes and plans that require you. And so God's going to allow them to stand just like he allowed Pharaoh to stand, even though they're going to do so in their hardened state. With that, then, Paul quotes two Old Testament passages in verses 8 through 10 to emphasize that this is nothing new with Israel. This is the way it's always been. They've had a regular history of resisting God and thus actually being a curse to God's faithful people. And as a result, they're simply getting what they deserve. This is just the way God has always had to work with the nation. There's always been the remnant and the hardened rest of them. This is what Paul says. First quote, verse 8 is this. Uh, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And that's a quote from Isaiah 29.10, this idea of the spirit of stupor, which echoes that idea of being hardened. That you, I picture the spirit of stupor as just like, uh, they can't totally see, they can't, right? Like they're just kind of stumbling in the dark. And so eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. As it was true in Isaiah's day, they had a spirit of stupor to this very day. When it says God gave them that, again, it's not arbitrary and it's not against their will. It's in keeping with their choices and in keeping with their resistance to God. And so they they don't want to listen to God. They don't want to see what God is up to. Fine. You can have a spirit of stupor. That's sort of the idea, both in the context of Isaiah and in the context of Paul's audience. In fact, uh, Motyer, in his commentary on Isaiah, describes the spirit of stupor this way. He describes it as a de determined spiritual insensitivity becomes judicial spiritual paralysis. Did you catch that? I like that description because it emphasizes both sides of it. They had sort of this determined spiritual insensitivity. They're not going to listen to God. They're not going to follow God, right? And so that becomes 
judicial spiritual paralysis. Fine. You like stupor. You like not seeing. You like a hard heart. You can have a hard heart, and God, in his justice, gives them what they have chosen. And that's the spirit of stupor. Now, Paul goes on then in verses 9 and 10 here, and he quotes and he quotes from another passage out of the Old Testament, this time from Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23, which records David's prayer for God to judge them in this way. And again, it's connected to the previous quote from the idea of eyes, a very typically Jewish way of stringing verses together was using key words. And so the passage that he quoted in verse 8 uses the words eyes, eyes to see not. Well, you get that same sort of thing here in this passage from Psalm 69. And so it reads like this. And David says from the Psalms, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And so both these quotes um, emphasize that this is nothing new with Israel. Even in David's day, even in Isaiah's day, right? They've had this issue of hardening their heart, resisting the will of God. And Paul has already talked about some of that throughout this. And so it's nothing new with Israel. And not only that, it's not arbitrary with Israel. It's something that comes as a result of their rebellion, their stubborn and obstinate ways, that stubborn and obstinate people that Paul mentioned in Romans 10.21. N.T. Wright explains it this way. He says, Paul is drawing on a Jewish tradition that runs like this. When God delays outstanding judgment, those who do not use this, this time of delay to repent and turn back to God will be hardened so that their final judgment when it comes will see, be seen to be just. As the analogy with Pharaoh in 9, 17 through 18 indicates, this hardening is not something that comes for a while, during which time something else happens, and then the hardening is removed. Rather, the hardening is what happens during a temporary suspension of the judgment that would have otherwise fallen to allow time for some to escape. And so, Israel is being hardened so that the remnant can turn to Jesus in faith and thus experience the saving righteousness of God. Now, this language about and this emphasis on Israel being hardened leads to a new question in chapter 11, and that is, well, are they so hard they could never return? Could they never repent? The way Paul states it in verse 11 is this, I say then, they didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? And the idea is, They've stumbled so bad, they've completely fallen, and there's no hope for them. There's no return for them. It's the idea of falling irrevocably. And Paul's answer to that question is, well, no, the stumbling at the present time has actually led to Gentile salvation, which in turn will motivate more and more Jews to repent and believe the gospel. So, no, they didn't stumble so as to fall irrevocably. It's not impossible for them to return. And so he answers, may it never be. Did they stumble so as to fall? Well, may it never be. But their transgression, meaning their rejection of the gospel, their but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And Paul's already talked about that in chapter 10, how by a, a people which were not God's people, by another nation, God's going to stir up jealousy. And so that jealousy hopefully will motivate more and more of them to actually investigate, investigate the gospel more fully so that they can come and 
return to Jesus and return to God. And so he goes on in verse 12 and says, now, if their transgression, remember, that's the rejection of the gospel, is riches for the world, i.e. the Gentile world and the whole message about Jesus going there. So if their, their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now, what does he mean by their fulfillment be? Well, the word fulfillment is literally fullness, pleroma in Greek, their fullness be. And it apparently refers to, as best as I can tell, their full number, the full amount of them. I think we need to look at it in connection with verse 25, where it refers to the fullness of the Gentiles, which again seems to be the full number of those who believe. And when Paul says that about Gentiles in verse 25, he's fully aware that that doesn't mean every single Gentile is going to believe, right? That fullness doesn't mean every Gentile or even the majority of Gentiles. And so it seems to really should be understood the same way here in this verse and verse 12 about the fullness of the Jews. It seems to speak here then of the full or complete number of Jews who eventually believe the gospel while not suggesting most or even the majority of the Jews will. Just a good many more than had believed during Paul's day will someday eventually come in. So believing that somehow by more and more Gentiles coming in, it's going to provoke uh, Jews to jealousy because somehow the Gentiles are experiencing their benefits and their blessings. Wait, that can't be. And so believing that that's going to move more and more Jews to actually come to the gospel, Paul says, I enlarge my ministry. I do my best to get as many Gentiles as possible in the hope that even more and more Jews will come in as well. That's where Paul goes in verses 13 and 14. Look at what he says. He says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. So Paul makes it clear that he's focused primarily on the Gentiles. And he says this, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, that was Paul's specific ministry sphere, right? He was called to be the official ambassador for Jesus to the Gentile world. Not that he ignored Jews. He preached, always started his ministry in the synagogue, but he knew he was called primarily to focus on the Gentiles, just as Peter was primarily called to focus on the Jews. They had different spheres of ministry. So as much as I am a apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I enlarge my ministry, he says. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Notice that some, he knows he's not going to be able to save all of them, but he's hoping that somehow by reaching the Gentiles, it'll move the Jews to jealousy so that some of them will investigate the gospel more fully and come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. For he says in verse 15, if their rejection, that is the Jews being on the outside of the gospel, on the outside looking in, what he explained in chapter 10, their rejection. So if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but like life from the dead? If if Jews come back to faith in Jesus, right? If, if, if they return and believe the gospel, it'll be like a resurrection. It'll be like life from the dead for them. And so now thinking about Gentiles coming in, Jews, more and more Jews coming in leads Paul to some imagery about the relationship between Jews and Gentile and what I like to call God's family tree. He says in verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also holy. First piece of dough seems to refer to 
the nation of Israel, Old Testament Israel, the maybe even some of the early Old Testament Israelites, the patriarchs and some of that, like if they are holy, meaning set apart for God and God's purposes, well, then the whole lump is. Or if the root is holy, well, then the branches are holy too. And this leads Paul into this imagery of God's family tree. And so he starts using an imagery of a tree to talk about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and all of that, that all are one tree that grow out of this holy root, i.e. the faithful Jewish remnant from the Old Testament, the line of promise that was carried forward through that faithful remnant. And so if that's holy, if those Jewish roots are holy, well, then the branches are holy too. And so now with that, Paul begins to talk about specific branches, and and he's using this to really help the Gentiles think about their relationship to the Jews and, and what can happen to Jews if they put their faith in the Messiah. Here's how it reads. He says, now, if some of the branches were broken off, presumably meaning Jewish branches in the context, so if some of the branches were broken off this tree— uh, and you, being a wild olive, remember he's speaking to Gentiles, so you are Gentile branches. So, and you, i.e., a Gentile, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Um, and so here we have Gentiles being added on to God's family tree. So, Jews being broken off, Gentiles being added on. That's the picture in the imagery here. And so, you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And so, picture an olive tree, picture some branches being cut off, uh, picture other branches being grafted onto the tree. That's the picture he's trying to paint. What he's trying to help the Gentiles that he's speaking to see is look, it's not as if somehow you're superior to them. Like you owe everything to the Jewish root. You owe everything to the trunk of this tree and the roots of this tree that started back with Abraham and worked through the patriarchs and continued down through the faithful remnant all the way down to the present time. And so you're being added onto God's family tree and you're coming in as a wild olive branch. You're coming into as like something extra, something unnatural, something that's being added in later. That's the imagery. And he's hoping by getting the Gentiles to see this, it'll change their attitude towards the Jews and vice versa. And he'll deal with all the practical implications of that here in the following chapters. And so you became a partaker of the rich root of the olive tree along with them. So he says in verse 18, so don't be arrogant towards the branches. Don't have a superiority complex. Don't think you're better than them. It's like, like you owe everything to that Jewish root, right? There's no place for anti-Jewishness or arrogance towards, you know, like, I'm better than you, O Jew. There's no place for that from the Gentiles. He says, but if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Like, you owe everything to the, the roots that grew through the Old Testament story, right? You owe everything to that. It supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says in verse 20, well, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. Again, it's not arbitrary. There's a very good reason why Jews are being broken off of God's family tree. It's because of their unbelief. They don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. But you stand only by your faith. And so you, O Gentile, who are added on to this family tree of God, you are added on simply because of your faith and trust in Jesus. So don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. But fear, have a 
healthy respect, have a healthy circumspection about this. Recognize that you're a wild branch and you're being added on. And so he goes on and says, for if God didn't spare the natural branches, like if God didn't spare Jews, uh, well, then he won't spare you either. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell, i.e. those who did not believe and the context, he's talking primarily about Jews. So to those who fell, severity seems severe. It's not unjust. It's not wrong uh, because of their unbelief, but it's severity. But to you, you Gentiles who had no claim on this, no entitlement to this, to you, behold God's kindness. If, he says, you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And so there's no guarantee, he says. There's no guarantee. They were cut off because of their unbelief. You're on there because of your belief. God's being merciful and gracious and kind. You need to continue in that kindness or else you too could be cut off the tree. And then he goes on in verse 23 and says, And they also, those Jews that have rejected Jesus, they also, if they don't continue in their unbelief, guess what? They could be grafted back in again. For God's able to graft them in again. He's able to do that. And so if a Jew comes to faith in Jesus, they'll be right back on the family tree. So verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, which is not the way grafting is done, but for Paul's sake, it makes sense. And he's emphasizing the unusualness of it. And so you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? If God can graft in you, a wild olive branch, contrary to nature, surely he can graft in a Jew who the whole root, they come from that. That's their story. That's right. Like, so he can graft them back into that as well. And so back to the big question Paul's wrestling with, has Israel fallen irrevocably never to be able to get up again? And the answer is certainly not. All they have to do is return and put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, and they'll be put right back onto the family tree. Because God only has one family tree. And now at this point in salvation history, the line of demarcation for whether someone should be on the tree or not, whether someone's part of the family or not, is, is not what kind of heritage, what kind of lineage, what kind of background they have. The line of demarcation is faith in Jesus. And Gentiles are on the family tree because of their faith in Jesus. Jews are off the tree because of their lack of faith in Jesus. Jews can get put back on the tree if they'll put their faith in Jesus. Gentiles can be cut off the tree if they quit believing and trusting in Jesus. It's all about your faith in Jesus. And so God has one family tree composed of Jews and Gentiles, who, who put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. And with that, Paul feels he has brought his argument full circle. Everything he's wanted to say has been said. He's got one last paragraph to wrap all of this up and to drive home the point about who then really is a true Jew. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Well, now we have a pretty good idea of what it means to be a true Jew and how a Jew is going to be saved. And Paul now just needs to wrap all that up with the final conclusion. And to that, we'll turn in our next session that covers chapter 11, verse 25, down through the end of the chapter.